Hi, everyone. I'm Mary Morton, and welcome to Gathering Ground. This is our podcast where with each new episode, we explore topics that aim to help our listeners figure out how to thrive in the nonprofit industry. We are a national-based consulting firm, and we are working with client partners all over the country in the areas of executive placement, research, organizational development, and of course, what we'll be talking to you about today, racial equity, access, diversity, and inclusion. So later this week, we will be sharing the information uh, from our roundtable session. We will actually share the recording of our roundtable session. And this is from our Morton Group Ready Symposium. Many of you hopefully had a chance to join us on November 10th. And you'll have an opportunity to hear from Pamela Newkirk, from Sean Thomas Breitfeld, from Michelle Morales, Ronnie Patrick, and Audra Wilson. Those are all the guests we had on the afternoon session. And we had a chance to answer some of the questions, but we're going to try to answer many more questions here this evening. So I'm thrilled to welcome some of the Morton Group uh, team members that I am really honored to work with um, every day. And I want to start um, by introducing Lisa Gilmore. Uh, Lisa joined as the project manager, joined Morton Group as a project manager for Your Voice, Your Health. It's a University of Chicago research study on shared decision-making between LGBTQ uh, individuals of color and healthcare providers. And currently Lisa is the senior trainer for us at Morton Group. And she uses her expertise uh, for facilitation and she's a great facilitator, I just wanna say, and curriculum development uh, in our Equity and Inclusion Institute. And next, I want to introduce um, Jessica Kadish Hernandez, and that is Kadish by birth and Hernandez by marriage, she likes to say. Um, Jessica joined Morton Group in 2011, which is such a long time ago. She's had many, many experiences and adventures since then. She joined as a project coordinator and is now our consulting associate um, and does so many things uh, with regard to facilitation, and um, she's been a teaching artist for over 10 years. It's hard to believe you've been doing that for 10 years, Jessica. Um, and she leads sessions with participants ranging from kindergartners to corporate professionals. Now, that's a room I'd like to be in, the one with the kindergartners. Um, next, we want to bring on Anidra Kerr. Anidra has a background in organizational development. She joined us um, probably about six months ago as a senior consulting associate. And she has experience in uh, working with teams to stabilize and, and mobilize staff and working with management teams um, to make sure that they're advancing their organizational uh, mission. So welcome, Anidra and Amanda Paul. Oh my goodness, uh, I don't have enough time to talk about the talents of Amanda Paul as our training and operations coordinator. Uh, she also joined us early this year, although it feels like she's been here for a very long time. Uh, and she works to combine her experiences as a consultant, an analyst, and a technologist. Ooh, technologist, I like that. Um, with her passion for fostering inclusive, equitable environments to do meaningful work that has a lasting impact. And Geneva Porter, our project director, uh, Geneva joined us. It's hard to believe it. It's almost a year, um, almost two years, actually. She has just done um, such extraordinary things with us and has, has brought this breath of fresh air. And um, she likes to be organized and she likes to have things documented. And that's very helpful for us. Um, she has extensive experience working across sectors with diversified entities, including government, higher education, for-profit, nonprofit, public health, healthcare, She's done a lot. Um, so excited to have you all here. This is the first time we will have an opportunity to sort of be together in this way to, um, to talk about uh, a number of things, but in particular, to focus on racial equity, access, diversity, and inclusion. 
And what we're gonna do for this next hour and change is to really look at some of the questions many of you asked us during the um, symposium and we just couldn't get to. So we thought, why not do this live? So of course you can also put questions in the chat and we'll take those as we can. However, we're gonna start with the questions that we received during the symposium. And for that, I am gonna turn it over to Jessica. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, I'm remembering being behind the computer when it was no longer my turn to present and just watching the questions fly in. Yes, lots and of questions. Chatting behind the scenes. There's there was a real sense of frankly honor in receiving those questions, knowing that folks don't always have the opportunity to have a welcoming space to share those questions. So getting to go through them, we found a real through line was around organizational culture. So we got so many questions around whose ideas should be prioritized? How do we generate solutions? Concerning levels of staff too, what do we do when staff isn't listened to and leadership moves forward with their own agendas? And going all the way back to step one of how do we get this work started? So we wanna do it, now what? And what goes into that first step? So that's where, that's where we're gonna start this section with Okay, so you wanna do ready work, now what? How do we get started? Especially if you are alone or mm -hmm. perceive yourself to be alone or one of a few in your organization. So I love, this is my favorite Morton Group Zoom moment of nodding, yep, we know, we know this feeling, we've <laughs> seen this feeling. Always looking for allies as a first step. So even if you are, in a position where you're the only one carrying the desire to do this work, yeah. there's somebody else at some other level or in some other part of the organization that you haven't connected with yet, that once you do, you'll be stronger together. So finding, finding your allies, figuring out where they are and providing resources for leadership as well. Perhaps your allies are mid-level, entry level at the organization, not yet at the leadership level, you have the power to provide resources for the leadership to figure out how they can implement change from where they're sitting. And one of the resources that we offer in this regard is a handout that's available on our website that our wonderful producer is going to drop into the chat in just a second. Yes. Are you ready to work on racial equity? in your organization. Thank you, Mary. Let's see, when, if folks are listening to this audio only, Mary just lovely held up the handout. So it's a series of questions that guides you through, where is the organization now? Has there been a racial equity incident that brought this work to the forefront? Have there been previous efforts that either stalled or didn't go well? And so now we're back to square one. Well, it's a, it's a handout that takes you through those questions. And, you know, something else that came up and I'm, this is where I'm looking around the, the Zoom screen, uh, particularly at, I was gonna say, particularly at everyone, everyone's or, organizational experience, the difference between hiring and retention. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of focus mm -hmm. on, we know diversity is important. We've got to hire a racially diverse team. But then once folks are in the room, now what? How are people being treated? Yeah, Mary, what were you gonna say? Well, you know, I was just gonna say that often uh, when we talk about diversity, people 
automatically go to race and often race alone as their diversity indicator, if you will. And it's important to keep in mind that um, race is the one uh, diversity indicator that we can see most often. And so that's the one that people may key in on. But when we talk about um, diversity and we talk about intersectionality, we wanna look at um, everything from ableism to uh, you know gender to transphobia, right? We wanna look at the different indicators. So gender identity, sexual orientation, um, physical ability, uh, geographic location, economic background. Those are all diversity indicators. And if you're truly trying to build a diverse and inclusive environment, then you wanna look at race and beyond race as well. Yeah, absolutely. That we walk, we walk into a room or in right. this case, hit enter Zoom meeting into a room as our, as our full selves, as all of those identities that you mentioned. And so our robust DEI ready effort has to include all of those dimensions of us because ultimately the goal is to get folks to bring their full selves to work and be safe and celebrated doing so. So it's not just about let's get folks who look different but all have the same ideas or mentality that's already present. And I'm thinking too about Anidra about the work that you've done getting around organizational missions, helping organizations to make sure that they're, that they're serving their mission and the connection between ready work and organizational mission. That when you can draw that link between here's what your mission and vision is, here's how ready fits into that, that that's, that's a great way to move the organization forward as well. Does anyone, I love, yeah, like, yes, examples. Yeah, Nidra. No, absolutely. Um, you know, organizations of course spend often a lot of time developing mission statements um and i think sometimes where where it's easy to fall down is how does that translate into what we do every day and how do you operationalize that mission so that you're seeing those things manifest and are the principles of ready already baked into your mission so to speak um and i think one thing that we don't often think about is your mission should really be reflected in your organizational budget so if you are not putting resources toward ready principles, um, such as how you're hiring, how you're recruiting, um, developing you know, affinity groups within the organization, if those things are not reflected in your organizational budget, having them in your mission statement is nice, um, but it, it doesn't get us um, you know, to the goal line. Although there is no goal line, it's, it's an ongoing journey. <laughs> yeah, can I just add in, I actually wanted to just have Lisa say something about that because you had this great statement you've made about budgets and and what they're representative of can you add that in yeah yeah i actually typed it in already oh, for folks that are joining us <laughs> through the webinar budgets are moral documents yeah if you don't see it in there it means you're not valuing it that's right Perfect. right on i'm thinking too about oper operationalizing what from the mission and from the budget uh, Amanda, with your work as a as a technologist and around around systems, when we talk about building organizational cultures and systems, it's the every step of how we're doing this work. We've got to integrate integrate ready at every level, right? Absolutely. I think particularly around technology, too, thinking about mm -hmm. is this accessible? Who is this for, and is it accessible to everyone? Um, which I think. We've seen lots of folks, and even internally at Morton Group, we're more focused on now that we're working more remotely, more virtually, folks are 
just workforces are more distributed? Um, how can we make sure that all the tools that everyone needs are available to them? Um, even as basic now as having internet access, um, which is not available to everyone, how can we make sure, how can we get around those barriers? Right. Yeah. And can, can I just add that that that's such a um, great point to make, Amanda, because I think we certainly know we've heard probably more about the digital divide with regard to schools and what they're existing, what they're uh, you know dealing with right now, um, working remote, and and of course Geneva shaking her head. Um, it's it it really has come to light in ways that we we knew existed, but in a different way um, that people don't have access, and we know students are sitting in cars. Uh, trying to access someone else's um, hotspot, right, from a from a Starbucks or some other place because they don't have it at home. And so also it, it just moves right up into adulthood. If people are living uh, in places where they don't have access to it, access to it, it's hard for them sometimes to participate in our training. So we have to take greater care um, with making sure that what we're saying is available and accessible. So not only the language we're using, but how we're you know, really um, delivering the work and the kind of technology we're using. So it, it is a new added dimension, I think, that everyone needs to be concerned about. But um, we get to think about it, I think, a little bit more, maybe, you know, than other groups do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are we embodying it at every at every level of the work, considering exactly. for all access needs? Right. And another another series of questions that we got was around who should be who should be leading this work mm-hmm. and who's ideas and experiences should be prioritized. And the, a thread came up a lot of, do organizations need to consider a more radical shift in roles and leadership positions to be able to deliver the results we're looking for? And we're all typing to each other, yes, all caps, yes, exclamation point, yes. That we've got to consider at every level what informs our ideas of what it means to be a leader, what a leader looks like, how a leader sounds, how a leader displays professionalism, what does it mean to be professional, mm. and the, the white supremacy culture that's embedded in those standards and how that limits how marginalized folks and folks of color can show up as full selves and be seen and respected as leaders. And when it comes to, to dismantling that, and and Lisa, you, are, you already know I'm, I'm shooting eyes over to you for the radical shift of white people recognizing and acting in relation to undoing white supremacy culture as it relates to how we understand and perceive leadership. That it's not enough to read the book or take the training and say, all right, I understand how this works now, but it's what are we going to do? Lisa, mm-hmm. what, are some, what are some of those steps that you see folks taking from, okay, I understand, now what do I do about it? Yeah, I would say um, what you're getting to, particularly for white folks, um, because honestly, most of the work of racial equity is uh, up to white folks um, because we have to give up the power. We have to shift um, our ways of being in the world, which includes our ways of being uh, in organizations um, Mm -hmm. and the ways that we make organizations because we've historically held the power that way. Um, And so it really, um, white people need to cultivate a lot of um, self-awareness at the Mm -hmm. personal level, uh, recognize what what that means in relation to interpersonal interactions. Um, And then, you know, there's there's self-work that white people need to do um, as individuals and then also as groups. 
uh, getting together and talking and learning together and cultivating empathy together and um, recognizing how has racism and white supremacy harmed us as white people as well. Um, because only with doing that and doing it without expecting uh, black uh, people, indigenous people and other people of color to tell us how to do it um, is a, a really important um, aspect of this work, particularly for white people. We have to figure it out for ourselves and we have to see that racism and white supremacy harm us as well, right? Um, and we have to see how it is that some of the ways that we are being with out thinking about it um, are not in alignment with what we say or who we say we are. Right. And we really have to get to get at that. And that plays out at the, at the individual, the internalized personal level, the interpersonal level, the institutional level, the cultural, the systemic, these outward concentric circles. Yeah. And I really, I really just want to take a second to lift up again, what you said about this work belongs primarily to white folks, not in the sense of hoarding ownership, oh, we have to have all the control and power over it, but that we white folks have a lot of work to do, that we can't say, I want change without changing. If we want change, we have to expect to change. Right on. Can I add something there? And I think that is important um, because what we know happens and this, we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but just that people of color are often, um, and I, I do want to use the word saddled with in some ways, um, having to do the heavy lift, uh, which is why when you, if people were at the Ready Symposium or if you've ever been in any of our trainings, you know that we always have a white person and a person of color doing the work together because that's, that's a way that we can start getting people to start thinking about how you share power in a room uh, in terms of their facilitation and that we are very clear on who's going to deliver which message, right? And how that's going to fall, depending on who's delivering it. So those are all things you want to keep in mind if you're starting this work in your organization. It, it is hard. It is absolutely hard. And we could, we could sort of feel that coming through some of the questions um, mm -hmm. because people absolutely feel like they're alone and they are pushing this forward. Um, and, you know, this document, are you ready to work on racial equity in your organization? Hopefully will be helpful to uh, for you to start thinking about some of these answers to the questions that are necessary to get the ball rolling. I mean, and it really does build, right? Don't you all, you know, it, it, it starts small, but then it builds. Is that something you've seen, Geneva? Absolutely. And I think the more that um, that initial work, because something we've learned, or I should say I've learned um, in this work as my career continues in this work is that the smallest um, item or the smallest memory, even when facilitating groups, like me bringing my own stuff to hearing from our client partners about what they've experienced, especially over the summer with the murder of George Floyd, and then us doing lots of lists listening sessions with client partners, either current ones we had or new folks that came to Morton Group uh, for us to assist them, knowing that one little trigger can really start that effect where it's like, wow, I'm thinking about this as I'm training and I'm getting derailed because I'm about to, you know, I'm feeling that too. And so not only from the perspective of the work that we do with our client partners, but also for those of us that do this work and um, take up this space um to just be cognizant of that and and I know that kind of veered off a little bit no, but that's no, the first thing that came to mind when you said um this that that process 
That's Mary. No, I think that's really accurate. And, and I think people sometimes think we do the work in a vacuum. Okay. So I did this workshop and all these things came up and now I'm just going to go home and, and, you know, or go downstairs since I'm already at home, uh, but cookie dinner or whatever, as though there's no impact of, of the work. I mean, it's the same kind of impact that I would, I had when I saw the murder of George Floyd on television and how many times I thought, are they going to show that even on the day of his services, right? So of course we take all this in. It's not as though we're robots and we don't feel it. The work is, is exhausting, it can be exhausting, um, but it is so important. At least that's what carries me through is that it's very important. And I feel like we're in our own way, you know, we're, we're making real change. Yeah. Yeah. And so many of our client partners also realize from an individual level, the internal work that needs to be done. Like they come to us kind of like, this is our organization and these are the things we need to work on. And depending on who's saying that message. And then as we go through the training, there's a lot of things that come to the forefront where folks realize, wow, I need to do a little bit of this internal work um, and really think more about um, this process and what this work really means for me as an individual, as well as a contributing member um, to my organization at whatever level client partners may present. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of whatever level, this is the this is the last part in this series of questions that we want to make sure to cover before we go into the next series is the importance of involving folks at all levels and from all areas of the organization in the work. That if you're in the C-suite or if you're in a back office, you have a different view literally and figuratively of what happens right. in the organization than the person who sits at the front desk. Both of those viewpoints are absolutely necessary for creating a truly ready culture. But if one, if one part of the organization, if there's a level that's not represented, if there's an experience that not, that's not represented, the work won't be as comprehensive, as comprehensive and transformative, comprehensive as it could be. It's a new word. <laughs> nice. No, that's absolutely true. And I think that um, it's, it, it really, as I said, it's, it builds momentum over time. And um, one of the things that we sometimes say when we're doing a, a launch is that process is progress. And meaning that you probably started some work and maybe it didn't go where you wanted and then you started some additional work. That's all part of the work. And so I hope that people don't feel like they're making progress because the fact that you're even having these conversations in your organization is so important. Um, that's, there's no, we can't overstate that enough that just to start the conversation is in fact part of the process and you're doing something in doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we build that, build that over time. But as Geneva was saying, the smallest, the smallest thing could lead down the road to a change that you can't even see yet. So even if we don't have a box to check that says, we have done it, we are ready now, which spoiler alert, you will, none of us will ever check that box. It's not <laughs> a box to check. It doesn't exist that the process and the and the relationships that carry us through it are are the success. And so I'm going to hand it over now to our senior consulting associate Anidra to dig into some of the questions we got about terms because we had a lot of those. Mm -hmm. We did. Thanks so much, Jessica. And yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the questions that came up around terminology um, and and just chat a little bit about how Morton Group, um, how we source that and 
um, what our practice is around that. And so several of those questions really were, you know, where do you come up with the definitions as well as um, we, had a, we had a question about a specific term in particular. We're gonna talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but we do wanna discuss um, what contributed to coming up with our definitions and sources. Um, and we do actually have a Morton Group DEI terminology doc um, that we recently shared with all of our participants um, in the symposium. So you should, if you were in the symposium, um, you should have that document. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we have many different sources that we go to here. Um, and so, you know, a few that, that I'll just rattle off, um, the Anti-Violence Project Glossary. There is the National Conference for Community and Justice. Um, I, I'm sure, you know, my colleagues probably have some favorite sources that they go to um, that are, are maybe not listed here, but I think the important thing here is um, that we all know that if we want to do this work and we want to do it well, um, keeping ourselves abreast of new knowledge and new information and new developments is critical. Um, as you can imagine, terminology, especially within the framework of READY, is something that does evolve and change. Um, I'm, you know, if we go back a certain number of years, definitions that we utilize today and mean something particular um, likely meant something very different years ago. And so um, again, it's about how do we do this work and how do we do it well? And, and knowing that this work can be daunting. Um, you know, I, we imagine that this question probably came out of a place of wanting to know literally where do you get your information, but also how do I make sure I'm using, um, you know, this language and these words correctly. And in fact, I remember um, one question that came into the chat during the symposium, um, someone said, you know, if, you know, if I don't know what is, what someone um, considers appropriate, um, what do I do? And, and those are tough situations, but I remember that we responded in, in to that particular question that, you know, if all else fails, ask, depending on your relationship yeah. with that person. There's, right. no, there's nothing um, better than really transparency um, and making oneself vulnerable and saying, I, I want to do this well, I want to communicate with you well, um, but I don't know exactly if I'm using the right word here or the right terminology. And again, that's gonna be different um, for, for different people. Is there something you want to add there, Mary? I did, I just wanted to say, I wanted actually Geneva to share um, about how we came up with READY um, because the, talk about where names come from. And, and we are really clear that when we're using information um, from one of our colleagues uh, uh, in the, you know, that do this work, we wanna always credit them. Right. Um, because, of course, the definitions are in in sort of the public domain, if you will. Right. You can find a lot of just general definitions. However, what we are generally um, thinking about when we're putting together is, is the formatting of the information and how we're sharing it. And if we're sharing it really as one of our other um, um, colleagues uh, who you know do this work, if this is how they have used it, then we want to acknowledge them. But when we were talking, thinking about the name for the symposium, so, uh, Geneva, what, what came up then? Sure, so um, we kind of did a, a little a search because although ready, it actually sounded cute and it actually fit <laughs> what we were trying to do. We and so appearances are important and they matter. Um, and so when we did a little bit of research to really find out, you know, if this is, you know, have how have people really done these kind of symposiums before? And um, we have had Boule on Gathering Ground, Mary has before. And so there was a presentation that 
we um, that Vu told us had been done that we had not been aware of. And so we let um, him know that, well, we're planning this, um, this seminar. Have you ever heard this, of this before? And even though the words in ready mean something specific with us with racial equity, access, diversity, and inclusion, there were other um, like wordings or ways that the words were being used like race and equity and. So, you know, there's little nuances, but the, 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 the main point was that there was no one like um, embraced um, and definitely not patented kind of way of looking right. at ready. But right. we wanted to make sure that we gave credit to where credit was due with respect right. to um, this topic. And so the cuteness worked um, for us and is working for us. And um, we're gonna, you know, keep moving keep forward. Keep using it, right. And just so people know, Vu Lei is uh, a former executive director of a nonprofit out in the, um, in the Seattle uh, area. And he writes a blog called Nonprofit AF and you can figure out what the AF stands for. Um, and it's really, really funny. And if you do not subscribe to it, I, I would encourage you to do so. Um, always writing on a lot of timely topics primar primarily around funding and nonprofits um, and just always giving it to funders in a very direct way, um, which is one of the reasons why we love them. Um, so yeah, so, so check out Vu Lay. It's V-U-L-E, Nonprofit A-F. Back to you, Anidra. Yeah, thank you. No, Vu is great. And thank you for that, Geneva, as well. Um, we want to move on to talk about how structures of communication can also reinforce existing power structures and systems of inequity in our organizations. So an example of this could be when a senior team member always opens um, meetings or even particularly always opens meetings um, around ready um, and those topics. Um, I'm sure we've, many of us have experienced this um, you know, in our lives, whether it's in, you know, a, a workplace or another institution we belong to, um, you might find the same people always leading, developing the agenda, speaking in the meeting. Um, and so that can really be counter to inclusion, of course. Um, and so there, there, there are small things and big things we can do to, to counter that. Um, and so it's important that when we think about meetings and the topic of the meeting, first and foremost, let's set some guidelines and expectations around the meeting um, so that everyone's coming in with those same expectations. And if possible, ask for feedback um, prior to the meeting. Um, again, this, this lends itself to inclusion so that you don't just have the folks, um, as, my, as my colleague Jessica referenced in the C-suite, um, designing the agenda. Because oftentimes when you do that, the topics are not necessarily going to feel as relevant to the, uh, everyone else in the organization. Um, and especially when it comes to ready, of course, because again, you've heard us say this many times, but you know, we know, Morgan Group knows that this is a heavy lift for organizations. It's a heavy lift for leaders. And so anything that you can do as a leader or as a colleague of someone who's um, uh, working toward this effort, create opportunities for access and inclusion for everyone so that folks see, I have a role in this, I have a place in this, um, I belong and, and I have a voice to share in this as well. And we just wanna make sure that, that door feels open to everyone. Um, we do have some resources that we'd like to share as well um, around how to look at those structures um, of communication that can reinforce uh, power structures. Um, there's actually a really uh, cool New York uh, Times article about Zoom meetings and gender. 
Um, and uh, that has more to do particularly with gender inequity in virtual meetings. Um, of course, being online now presents, it's a whole nother level uh, of considerations that we have to uh, think about when we're in our meetings, but that's just one resource um, that you can take a look at. And so we're gonna move on to talk a little bit about that topic, that one uh, terminology or term that someone asked about. Um, as I mentioned, there were questions about how do we, how does Morton Group develop your definitions and where do you source them? Um, in particular, someone uh, asked this question. I remember learning in the mid 2000s that many were researching and using the term toxic stress for racial trauma, microaggressions and lack of equity related to ACE scores. Is this term still being used or do you know of any further resources um, related to this topic? Um, and so I'm gonna jump first in, and tell you what, what um, ACEs stands for. It's Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale. Um, my, our, our colleague, uh, Lisa, is an expert in this area. Um, and <laughs> That's new star. <laughs> He's very knowledgeable in this area, um, and so has really helped us understand um, how these how these dots all connect. Um, and and so yes, it is used. Um, toxic stress is a response that can occur when a child experiences strong, frequent, or prolonged adversity, which of course can come in a number of forms. Um, it can be family, economic hardship, um, neglect, abuse. Um, challenging relationship dynamics within the family. Um, and so yes, toxic stress is real. Um, and it's not just something, uh, of course, that a child, child can uh, experience. Um, we can experience that at some level throughout all of our lives. And, and again, many of us likely have. Um, and so we should acknowledge that um, and, and be okay with that and also acknowledge each other in that, um, that we've likely had uh, uh, detrimental or toxic experiences in our lives. But here we are learning um, to change that situation and to um, reverse as much as possible um, damage that has been done um, and to stop repeating patterns. And so there's some resources that we have here um, that we'd like to share as well. Um, one in particular that really stands out to me is my gra grandmother's hands, radical racialized trauma and the pathway to mending our hearts and bodies. Mm by Resma Manakam. Um, that is a great resource um, that um, we, we look to often um, and there are many others. And so um, that's just one we'll share with you today. Um, but terminology is important and being sure that, you know, we're paying attention to the logistics. How are we setting up this meeting? How are we using terminology? How are we defining things is critically important. So I'd like to pass it over to our project director, Geneva. Um, and Geneva will address some questions regarding affinity groups. Thank you, Anidra. Yes, affinity groups, caucuses, employee research groups, or ERGs. There were several questions that came in about affinity groups. And what they are is groups within organizations or within companies where folks can come together based on their identities. And it really allows people to be able to discuss the workplace um, issues, concerns, and it's really um, part of this kind of logistical thought and thinking about how work is done and what kind of opportunities are afforded to folks within organizations that are doing um, this work, um, this very important work. And so just having the um, opportunity to come together with folks that share one aspect of someone's identity um, is important. And some of the questions that really came in um, 
were focused on, you know, what are affinity groups, how they can be used, what's their purpose. So we're going to um, address two core questions that came in about that. So one of the questions was, what might you base affinity on? And so we're glad you asked that. And so one thing that you would um, base affinity on um, could be things that um, folks think about immediately or think they see when they look at you. And again, I'm saying what they think they may see or assume they may see, but it could be identities such as race or gender, um, positional authority within an organization, age, just as examples. Um, but it also depends on the organizational needs um, of the people at the organization. And any identity-based alignment that people have really should be considered. And so, for example, if ableism is something that's a challenge at an organization, then affinity groups for disabled folks might need to be put together or maybe um, necessary, which a lot of folks um, may not have thought about previously. So um, that was one question about what we might base or what organizations may base um, affinity groups on. Um, another question was focused on if there were any tips to starting or sustaining affinity groups. And this one question was from the perspective of a middle manager mm -hmm. trying to bring in frontline workers as well as those from the C-suite. So really going back to Jessica's comment about that and how important it is that folks at all levels of an organization are involved in this very important work. So that is not just seen as their work or this group's work, but really it's everybody that's um, involved within the organization to be able to uh, work on these issues um, together. And so in starting affinity groups um, or identity-based caucuses or however um, it might be turned within the organization, it's important to make sure that these folks have resources available to them and that they're not just, you know, put together in a group and like, okay, talk about what y'all have in common. It's, it's much deeper um, than that um, and much more, um, it needs to be much more guided. Um, and one way to be able to really sustain these groups that are put together is to look at them from the perspective, from an organizational development uh, perspective and really being able to have um, equity action plans. We really highly recommend those plans being put into place in order to really embed this found foundational need um, and necessity for this work to be within an organization. So we talked, um, my colleague Anidra talked about, you know, mission statements and how embedded are they within the organization. And Lisa uh, reminded us about budgets and how you know, where's the money? Is the money being focused on being able to really um, address those things within the organization? So, you know, there's a lot of times too um, some pushback a little bit to actually forming these groups um, and resistance. And we want to talk about that for a little bit because particularly it comes from um, folks that um, are white identified um, when focusing on racial equity. And so this is one of the kind of um, detours or um, pitfalls. Roadblocks. Um, we, <laughs> yes, that we spot sometimes um, in this resistance to do equity work. Yeah. Um, really in, in some places, too, we've heard, you know, really comparing it to segregation, which is not a comparison all, at all. Um, but I think it, it really speaks to the discomfort that some folks um, may have. And um, Lisa, um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about uh, what you've seen in the work that we've done, and particularly the work that you've done with the white caucusing um, work that we've been doing with organizations. Mm, I'd actually like to ask uh, our dear colleague Jess to go for this one, because Jess has a cool way of talking about it. If that's okay. Of course. Yeah. Okay. I think there's 
something that has to be named when ex when exploring this white identified resistance is the fact that white folks, we are generally not used to identifying as white, being considered as part of a racial group. So just that in and of itself is new for a lot of folks. And then when you're asked to have an affinity group conversation or separate space around it, it's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of newness. That doesn't mean that newness shouldn't be overcome, but just white folks are generally not made to think of ourselves as racialized, although, although we very much are. The difference between affinity groups and, and segregation, that naming, naming race and, and having affinity groups that are, that are racially, racially aligned or by any other identity marker, the point of segregation is to maintain separation and unequal outcomes. The point of an affinity space is to heal, strategize, share experiences, not have to explain yourself to folks who don't understand, then come back together and move it forward together. We inherently understand the need for this. Anybody who's in a partnership and takes a weekend away with friends, you, you have to leave your space and come back to it in order to move forward together. And I absolutely agree with that. And one of the uh, barriers, roadblocks, challenges that comes up uh, is when people will say, and, and these are white people, but I, I'm concerned about this division and that we're going to be divided in some way. And it is, isn't that counter to what we're really trying to do? And there are times when, you know, the question might be, um, how is it that you exist in all other parts of your life all the time with very... Uh, homogenous groups, but it is often only when you want to talk, when, when there's an opportunity to talk about race, do you think, well, where are the people of color? <laughs> but, you know, because of course we, we all live in Chicago. We live in, it's a very segregated city and um, it's really clear, you know, when you've literally crossed the street, right. Um, in terms of being in a different community, a different neighborhood, but people don't think about it in those terms. They think if we're going to talk about race, then we must have people of color here to have that conversation. And, and the reality is, um, you know, at least speaking for myself, I want you to have that conversation without me because I get to fall into that conversation without even thinking all the time because it is just part of my life. And when you don't have to have that conversation, that is what is called privilege, y'all. <laughs> yeah. So something to keep in mind. Thank you, Mary. And also too, um, with Mary's comment too, and then thinking about what people are bringing as far as their different identities, as well as um, positional um, authority within the organization. And just keeping in mind that is that, you know, when, when um, the different affinity groups are organized by these different identities and by the intersections of not only their identities, but also their positions within the organization, um, we've worked with organizations who have caucused um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color and white groups, and then also divided those groups by associates or mid-level management leadership. And of course, the bigger an organization is, the more likely you're able to do that. If you're smaller and have one person in each of those groups, that's not going to be um, that effective. But the bigger the organization is, right. 
you're able to do that. And so it's also important to know that those affinity groups are really for the groups to be able to have that comfort level, not to necessarily, um, you know, be able to talk about or, um, you know, the other groups, but really being able to be in a positive, safe environment to talk about what they're experiencing, right. not to be separate in order to um, point fingers at another group. So exactly. that's what we wanted to share. Good point. Very nice. Yeah, it's that happens a lot though, and I'm I'm glad that uh, one of our listeners uh, brought that up. That people often think it's a way to get away from another group of people and and talk about them when it's really a it it's that's not what it's about. And um, if you participate in them, um, you know we've we've staffed many different kinds of affinity groups, and some of them have, have been um, organized around positional authority, and some of them have been organized around uh, race. And um, you can do both or neither. It just really depends, as you were saying, Geneva, on what, what's going to work in the organization. And we generally have some sense of that when we've um, completed an assessment for an organization. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And so with that, um, as we pass it over to Lisa, our senior trainer, um, to talk some more about some questions we had about microaggressions. A lot of questions about microaggressions. A lot of questions about microaggressions. Uh, And and, uh, I guess that was not surprising because that is something we have found um, in our work over the past years is that people really do have a lot of questions about microaggressions um, in our our trainings. Um, I do want to start right now, though, um, first giving a shout out to Facebook Live right now. Um, There are people who have joined us on Facebook Live. Hello, friends. And we're really glad that you joined us. Um, And we're we're happy that uh, that you're able to join us in this way. So this is another thing in relation to talking about access, right? Um, This is a way Facebook is a thing that a lot of people have access to. You can have access to it on a variety of different platforms or uh, pieces of technology. And so it's like a, it's like a, a, a way uh, that I think is really cool for us to be able to share tonight. I'm just yeah. very excited about that uh, as a, a tech head. That might say something about my age as well that I'm into Facebook. But anyway, um, so Geneva, thank you very much um, for, uh, for tossing it to me here. Uh, we did receive a very wide range of questions about microaggressions, um, everything from how to call out a microaggression to like, what do I do if I perpetrate one? Um, and, uh, you know, we'd like to start this conversation with one of the most uh, direct questions that came in through the chat during the Ready Symposium, um, which was, is it a microaggression if you just think it, right? Um, and this is a really cool question. Um, so if you just think it, it's a biased thought for sure. Um, rather than a microaggression. And I just want to make sure to remember to point out when we're talking about a microaggression um, versus a macroaggression, micro meaning at that personal level, not meaning it's a small aggression, but at the micro level of interaction versus macro being like a large institutional or systemic kind of aggression. Okay, so I just want to make sure to put that out there first. Um, But so if you think it, it's a biased thought rather than a microaggression. That moment of self-awareness Um, that conscious thought is the halfway point between implicit bias and then a microaggressive behavior 
or targeting someone with a microaggression, perpetuating a microaggression. There's lots of different ways to talk about it. Um, and in our workshops, we teach that microaggressions are the expression of our biases, right? Um, so when you catch that thought forming in your head, uh, say you're at a fundraising gala and you're looking at uh, a black woman near you and you catch yourself you know, about to hand her uh, your mm. empty plate. Uh, before you realize that she is the executive director of the organization, right? Or mm -hmm. she's on the board of directors or she's a fellow attendee there to give her contribution to the organization to sustain it, right? Um, if you hand her your plate, that's the microaggression. If you catch the thought before you express it as a behavior, uh, you have the opportunity to reflect and prevent yourself from causing harm. And that's super important. This is really the greatest opportunity for change is to cultivate that ability to catch yourself. Catch yourself before you let it out and harm others. Something that's fantastic news is that we've learned over time, our brains until we're well into our seventies still have the ability to retrain themselves and make new pathways from old behaviors and old thought patterns. We can literally make new pathways in our brains for our neurochemicals and all of that electrical energy to go, and we can uh, create new ways for our brains to work. So practice is very important. Um, we also want to turn our attention to what happens if we see a microaggression happening. And this is something that definitely came up mm. uh, a lot in the questions is, oh my God, what do I do? And this is very much a part of our work as well is, you know, what was brought up earlier about uh, I've learned terms, I've learned language, I've, I've yeah. got like a vocabulary, I have my reading list, but like, how? How do I do this work? How do I do things differently? How do we make change happen, right? And so when we're just thinking about this example of microaggressions, we have some ideas for you. Um, and so, you know, what happens if we see a microaggression happening? Uh, for me, I can tell you my initial thing is that I will start sweating. So just FYI, that is what happens to me. Thank you for sharing uh, I, that. <laughs> yeah, I have, to, I have to start working my way through the, okay, whew, I'm uncomfortable now, but what am I gonna do about it, right? Um, so there were questions about like, when should we be calling it out? Or how should a white um, person who witnesses a microaggression against a black person, what should that white person do about it? So first I wanna go to that question of calling it out, right? Um, so some considerations can be when, or how to call it out, or trying not to shame people who perpetuate microaggressions, because um, um, you know, approaching in ways that uh, uh, are going to elicit people's defensiveness um, is not necessarily a way to help for change, right? Um, and at Morton Group, one of the big things we talk about is maybe how do we frame this as being calling people in versus calling people out. Um, and it's, a, it's a, re a recognition as well. When we're talking about these microaggressions, we're talking about most of these things coming from implicit bias that people don't have an awareness of. And so uh, we think people can change. We think people can stop harming other people with awareness. Um, and so that's a part of what calling people in can be. Um, so uh, something that's important about this is if you can, man, it is super important to check with the person who was targeted by that microaggression because the target may not want you to approach the perpetrator about this, right? So if you have that opportunity um, to kind of check in, first of all, check in and see how they're doing, how they were impacted by it. Do they want you to say something or not? Um, sometimes also, it's important to know that um, someone who's been targeted 
may change their mind and ask you if you'll help later on. And are you going to be ready and able to do that if you've offered in the beginning? Um, it's really important to realize that you likely do not know what is best for the person or the people impacted by the microaggression. Okay. And this is a big part, uh, remembering it, particularly for white people about, um, remembering one of the characteristics or one of the elements of white supremacy is that, um, paternalism. And so I don't want to go into this, assuming that I know what's best, um, for a person of color that has been targeted by microaggression. Um, so next, you know, find time to have a private conversation. Let, let them know what happened, what you witnessed, how somebody was impacted, what their impact was on the target and on other witnesses. Try to think ahead of time, right? If you're gonna say something, try to think ahead of time. Do you have a request? <laughs> Do I have a request if I'm gonna go talk to you or I'm just gonna tell you what happened? Um, ideally, the person apologizes and let's work on real apologies, real apologies, right? Not things that further perpetuate uh, gaslighting or making it seem like the other person's crazy or too sensitive or whatever, real apologies. Lisa, uh, can I just give a, a quick example that sometimes yeah, people yeah. will say, um, you know, I'm really sorry you felt that way. No, I'm sorry, yeah. period, full yeah. stop. I'm sorry for whatever I, you know, for what I did, whatever the, you know, fill in the blank is, but I'm sorry. And not to, um, uh, you know, try to have that caveat or the, the, the apology where it, it really is sort of re-victimizing the person in some ways, right? So saying we're going to, again, um, it's all about you. It's your fault. I didn't know, but just apologize. I think that's so important. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. I hurt you. Mm -hmm. You know, um, be ready. If you're going to, if you're going to say something, be ready that that perpetrator who perpetrated the microaggression might ask you for help. And what are you going to do then, right? So if you think you're up to the emotional labor of helping, you can help them find resources. You can help them avoid making it about them. Um, you can help them focus on understanding the impact that they had, no matter what their intention was. Um, and if you're not up to it, you can refer them to Google or other resources that are readily available. Um, and you may be up for it at a, di at a different time too. Um, so get in touch with yourself about it. Um, and you know it's important that people speak up when we see microaggressions in play. Um, and Mary, I know uh, you, you and I, uh, you have been in a situation where you shared what what happened when you saw a microaggression, and we're thinking, yeah. what do I do? Yeah, I saw one just quickly. I saw one. I was in a meeting. Uh, mm -hmm. Someone was misgendered, and I was waiting for the person who was misgendered to say something and I didn't say anything. And so I had another opportunity um, to just apologize to the person. And I did it in front of other people intentionally because I wanted them to, I wanted to kind of model what we should be doing. If you hear that someone is misgendered in this case, it is not on that person to say something, but it is those of us who are observing um, that action to say something. And so I did apologize and uh, wanted to, you know, I wanted to say it because I, I felt so bad that I didn't say anything in the moment because it's like, it's not like I don't know better. I know better. And, and I truly believe though, when people do know better, they do better. And so even though I couldn't do it in that moment, I did come back and I think the person appreciated it and, you know, we kept it moving, but it's, it's an opportunity to model that behavior in front of other people, which is really important. Yes. Oh, so cool. Yeah. So cool. Um, so the other part of that 
previous question in this section was, uh, what about a white person who witnesses a microaggression against a black person? So um, white people, do not expect those that are harmed to do this work, right? When we're talking about racialized microaggressions, it is really white people um, who need to take up this work. Uh, of course, it is not only white people who hold implicit biases based in race. Um, biases based in anti-blackness particularly are present in all racialized identities in the United States. And that is something real um, and, and means something in terms of uh, opportunities for recognizing that implicit bias and opportunities to change. So I wanna put out there for you that figuring out how you wanna handle this is what being a co-conspirator or trying to be an ally looks like when you have privilege in ways that others do not, right? So another thing we wanna to get to that we discussed in the symposium um, was that microaggressions can cause some real damage to working in personal relationships um, if they're not addressed. So one question that we got uh, during the workshop was about how to build trust um, after experiencing microaggressions perpetrated by a specific person in a workplace and that fear of being gaslit when trying to address them, right? And this is definitely a common occurrence and oftentimes people will experience uh, the same person perpetrating microaggressions over and over again. Um, and so, so what can you do about that? It really can make a hostile workplace um, for folks. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I just wanna name that it is so real that one person can ruin an entire organization uh, for those people who are targeted by their microaggressions, right? Um, so that means to me, it's up to the entire organization to figure out what to do about it and how they're gonna handle that. Um, you know, for an individual who's experiencing this repeatedly, I would say examine whether you want to be in that position or in that company. Um, you know, really think about it for yourself to think about the emotional labor uh, that would go into trying to figure out what to do about it. Is it, is it where you're at currently worth that? Um, but of course, recognizing that this is not realistic uh, for most yeah. people, right? Um, to be able to just get up and leave an organization, leave a job whenever you want to, that's not real for most people. Um, so, and particularly for people who are most often targeted by microaggressions, right? right. Um, so it is really important. Um, and again, this is for people who want to be co-conspirators. It is really important to demand and get support from other people who have privilege and power um, to be the ones to hold those who do harm accountable uh, and to try to call them in. And if you are the target of microaggressions, try to identify allies and accomplices with shared identities with the perpetrator. Because um, again, it's up to them to be doing this work together, to be calling each other in. Um, it's, it's their work. It's my work as a white person to get other white people um, to build change in these areas. Um, one last thing I was thinking in relation to this question is that those who witness microaggressions but are not the targets of them um, need to have a way to connect with feeling that harm um, or feeling harmed as a witness, right? Witnessing really negative, bad things going on also harms the witnesses. It is true, proven time and time again. Um, and so we must feel compelled to action in relation to that. And if the targets of microaggressions keep leaving an organization, those who are not targeted can really easily slip back into feeling har uh, not feeling harmed um, and or feeling outraged when they're not witnessing it on a day-to-day -day basis, it makes it really easy to be like, oh, right, I'm not impacted by that. I don't have to think about it, okay? Um, well, in addition, thing when you talked about yeah. impact, 
that's just going back to this, um, the whole idea, in fact, really that intent, intent versus impact. And so even though folks may not intend any harm, the impact that it did harm you um, or it did harm this person. And so there's a way um, that if we see the microaggression being done to be able to address it in a way that really does call in the perpetrator. So saying you may not have intended to, and I'll just use myself as an example, you may not have intended to offend Geneva. However, when you said this to her, you made an assumption and the impact that it triggered her to another time when someone else did that same thing to her. So, you know, those language things and being able to really, um, um, number one, have the courage um, to help folks, but then being do, being able to do that same um, internal work about how much of the help are you really um, prepared to do. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Jeannie, because this, uh, you know, Mary said this earlier, this work is emotionally taxing. Yes. Right. Whether it's because you're doing it for a job or because you're doing it because you want the world and your organization or your family or your church or whatever to be different. It is it has an impact. That's right. And we're going to talk about self-care. Um, but I know you want to probably make one more point or are you are you at the yeah, end? There's your... One more thing I would okay. like to make. OK. Um, right. And this comes into specifically what's the stuff white people need to be doing. Right. So there was a question that was that was offered that was how can white people begin to feel confident about speaking up to call out discrimination or microaggressions. And literally it is practice, practice, practice. You have to practice, uh, not as in making up scripts of like approved conversations to just, cause that, that will seem so disingenuous that it's not gonna be helpful. Um, but practice using words uh, that feel like your words and get across what you're meaning. Um, think about examples you can use to describe what you mean and resources that you can share uh, in order to call others in, right? Again, practice, practice, practice. Um, something that has helped me is using microaggressions. Actually, I see in movies and television shows uh, for practice. Like, how, what would I say if I was standing there and doing that? Because there's all sorts of stuff on TV and in movies. Uh, yeah, uh, but it's always easier to practice ahead of time and to build your confidence uh, than to quote unquote practice in the middle of a situation that likely feels emo at least minimally emotionally escalated. So practice ahead of time so that you're feeling a little more confident. Um, but that's all the time we have to talk about this massive topic of microaggressions, yes. uh, even though they're happening on that micro level, my goodness. Um, but if you need more information for sure, you can find that on our resource page at mortongroup.com. Um, don't forget it's M-O-R-T-E-N group.com. Um, and uh, with that, I am super pleased to pass uh, the mic to our training coordinator, Amanda, um, to talk to what Mary referred to. How, how do we sustain ourselves in this work and uh, self-care? Yes. Thank you, Lisa. Um, I think uh, leading up to this point, um, I, I love being able to finish this conversation with self-care. I think it's something that can uh, just in itself feel like a privilege, just having the time to make time and space for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also just such an important essential part of sustaining this work, especially for those who are tasked with leading it. Um, and especially for those who feel like they're the only ones in their organization doing that. Um, and as facilitators at Morton Group, we're always talking about um, practicing taking care of ourselves and each other because we know um, how essential it is in terms of just being able to build capacity, capacity to hold space for others. 
Um, so we received a lot of questions around this topic and wanted to make sure to address them with you all today. Um, so our first question came from a participant asking about how to manage emotions that can inform or impact this work um, and including anger, uh, which I think can be uh, sometimes thought of as a negative emotion. So this person had named specifically that it seems like uh, during the Ready Symposium, there's a lot of focus on uh, transformation and racial healing and many folks are still processing the anger part of it. So how do we um, potentially harness this anger to continue moving this vital work forward? So first it feels really important to name that anger in and of itself is not a negative emotion. It's very normal and healthy and can be um, a great motivator and moving through that can be a part of that transformation and healing process. And we should be angry about racism and oppression, absolutely. Um, so it might help to begin by asking the question, how are you channeling that anger and using it in a constructive way to drive that change that you wanna see? So acknowledging it, um, talking about it, sharing with other folks that you've been hurt um, can also help to build empathy and trust, which are essential to this work. Um, so tactically on an individual level, having a network of support can be immensely helpful. Um, and that might look like therapy, honestly, um, connecting with other folks at your organization or other people in your field who are doing similar work, um, working with a career coach or a mentor, finding people outside of your organization as well who aren't in it with you every day um, and can provide some different perspective there. Um, and I think in the moment when you're feeling uh, that anger start to rise, um, practicing mindfulness techniques, um, breath work can help, um, adopting an approach of curiosity, asking a lot of questions, trying to better understand the other person, where that comment came from or why a specific situation has happened um, that's caused harm and kind of viewing that, uh, taking a perspective of um, this is an experience that I'm just collecting data on, um, which I also want to acknowledge can be really hard, especially in the moment, um, but is an important part of the work. Um, and on an organizational level, uh, Lisa, I know you've worked with a number of our client partners in this area, helping them to um, kind of create these spaces for healing and coalition building. Um, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts to share on how organizations can support individual uh, or employees in self-care. Yeah. You know, I would say um, something that, that we've done, uh, that we've gotten direct feedback from some of our client partners about that has been really helpful is uh, specific racial healing work, racial healing circles. Also, um, you know, it sometimes can look like a, a listening session um, and really working on providing people with skills and opportunities to practice deep listening. So deep listening in terms of the idea of, I am listening you to hear, listening to you to hear. I am not listening to respond to you, right? Having that ability to do that. And that has some benefits, like you were saying earlier about that helps to cultivate empathy as well. If I'm not, if I'm, if I'm listening to respond, I am self-focused still because I'm trying to think of what am I gonna say next? If I am listening to hear you, I am not, I am not self-focused. I am focused on an other that I can, um, you know, 
cultivate empathy around and connection with hopefully um, if I do this well. You know, so the, for those that we, we did a number of these this past summer, um, particularly after the murder of George Floyd and 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 all of the people uh, that were that we lost to uh, racist violence last year. Um, and you know, we found that with that, that the the deep listening um, to the harm that uh, people of color were experiencing uh, was a really good empathy cultivation uh, for white people, but also that a lot of um, particularly black uh, folks were saying how much it helped them to just be listened to. Right. Yeah, Mary, right. I see. I'm just gonna interject because we only have a few moments left and uh, I wanted to make sure that um, Amanda uh, had a chance to talk about some of the uh, resources that we put here. And I know we were gonna ask everyone quickly, were you gonna ask everyone what they did to relax? I, or did I, did I just blow that for you? <laughs> I'm yeah, it out absolutely. there. <laughs> um, yeah, I, we had a question from one of our ready participants um, who had asked as leaders of color specifically, where do you look for inspiration, support uh, and motivation when fighting against these entrenched structures? Um, personally, and Mary, this might be a little too woo woo for some people. Um, I look to nature for inspiration and motivation for um, reminders of what resilience and growth can look like. Um, and I find a lot of comfort in that and knowing that nothing lasts forever, honestly, and viewing, being able to view um, endings as transitions into something new. And for me, Adrienne Marie Brown is a huge influence there in that, in my thinking that way. Yes. Thank you, Jess. Uh, if anyone can't see, Jessica's holding up Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown. Uh -huh. Highly recommend. Uh -huh. um, Another author, artist, activist, educator um, that I find really inspiring is Sonia Renee Taylor. Um, and her book, The Body is Not an Apology is yeah. magical. Okay. Um, but I, I wanna open it up to the rest of the team here too, to share um, mm -hmm. what kinds of things work for you all. Uh, I'll just jump in and say that I really like dancing and I know most of you know that. So um, that is a way that um, I like tap dancing. I like all kinds of dancing, um, but dancing, movement, um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm good with nature, Amanda. So I'm like, I dislike nature, <laughs> <for God's. laughs> but, uh, Anidra, what would you add? Um, I'll jump in Geneva. Um, for me, it's music, you know, mu music, um, has a very, uh, calming effect on me and, uh, it's also an escape. Um, and, and from a variety of, of angles, I, you know, music can be very calming, but it also shows organization and coming together to produce something beautiful. Um, and, and so I, yeah, for me, music, you know, I, I'm glad we listed um, that we're gonna share uh, a link to the Morton Group um, Racial Equity Spotify playlist because yeah. it's a great playlist. It's, it's a great um, playlist. Yeah, yeah. That, that's mine, Mary. Yep, and Geneva? Mine is music as well, um, but I would say even more just practicing breathing. Um, it's amazing that I can make it through a day because I'm like, did I even breathe? Like I can feel myself. It's like when you really take that moment to really take some deep breaths in and deep breaths out, it really calms situations and gives, gives me clarity um, before reacting. So um, the power of breathing and taking intentional breaths is so good for the body in, in so many ways. It's something I'm 
try to do more of. It's something I need to be reminded about for sure. I absolutely say that. Now, this this came, um, as Amanda said, for leaders of color, but let's just hear quickly one thing that you would say, Lisa and Jessica, before we sign off, because it's time. Lisa, um, anything to I'm offer? not good at it, at self-care. Um, and so uh, what do you I do? just have to go and one take thing. walks. One thing. Walks. Okay. walks, okay. Jessica? Poetry has been has been it for me, especially uh -huh. during the pandemic. Pat Parker is one of my favorites. One of the poem that's been resonating me with this week is for the white person who wants to be my friend. Mm -hmm. ah, okay, very nice. Well, believe it or not, we are we are done. Um, it goes very fast. There's never enough time. Uh, but thank you to everyone uh, who's listening on Facebook. Thank you, Facebook. Uh, thank you if you joined us on Zoom. Thanks to Lisa and Anidra and Amanda and Jessica and Geneva. Uh, really appreciate um, you joining in and answering these questions. And, you know, we might do this again. We, we might do it again um, because we know that there's not a lot of places to go for this kind of information, just sharing information. Uh, and we think that's really important to do. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. If you didn't catch last week's episode, it's available with the rest of our archives at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll be back in 2021 with new episodes, new guests, and some familiar faces. In the meantime, stay safe and stay healthy. My name's Mary Morton, and this has been Gathering Ground. Until next time.